Ukra Media family, Vladimir Broknevsky here, and welcome to episode number 15 of the Ukra Media podcast, where I serve our Ukra Media family with weekly interviews from highly creative people. Now, today's guest is the one, the only Joey Kornman. Joey is the founder of School of Motion, an online education platform for motion designers. Joey, welcome to the show, and thank you so much for your time. Vladimir, it's awesome to be on here, man. Thank you. Joey, now, I'm kind of putting you on the spot here, but do you have a count of all the students that went through School of Motion to date? Uh, not off the top. I don't have an exact number, but I can tell you that we just had the biggest enrollment we've ever had. So we have quarterly enrollment sessions and our last enrollment, I think we had 774 students sign up for various classes, which I think puts us at least over 3,500 alumni worldwide. Yeah. Now, how long have you been teaching? Uh, I guess it depends how you define teaching. (laughs) (laughs) So I, uh, I mean, school of motion, was really the the first time I ever taught, I guess. And it's a little over five years old. I did teach for one year at a, an actual physical college down here in Florida, but that only lasted one year. And then I went back to internet teaching. So I guess you could say about five years. Wow. You know, back in high school, our soccer coach encouraged all of us to coach during the summer break. He told yeah. us that coaching will make you a better player because it gives you like a totally different perspective on the game. He also told us that you can't teach something you tr- don't truly understand yourself, which I found that to be true. And I think the more you teach others, the better you become yourself. You gain like a much better understanding of the subject. And actually, my twin brother applied the same concept early on in his career, and that's how Ukraine Media came about. Now, how did teaching others affect you personally? Well, it changed my entire life, uh, like every aspect of it. But j- j- like a, a, l- a small example would be this. So before I was running School of Motion, I was actually a creative director at a studio up in Boston. And it was a studio that I helped start. I had two business partners and I was running it. And I did that for four years. And by the end of it, there were a lot of things about running that studio that really drove me crazy and I didn't like and frankly made my life unbearable. But there was this part of it that turned out to be my favorite part, which was we had interns and we had uh, junior animators that we'd hired. And a lot of times, you know, we were trying to do like high end stuff. And so we would get these designs in from great designers and I'd hand them off. And and this, you know, junior animator would look at it and be like, I have no idea how to approach this. Like, how am I going to actually execute this? And I'd be like, ah, all right, let me teach you something. All right. I'd sit down. I'd do a little demo. I basically do like a tutorial. And I'd see that light bulb go off and, you know, and then I'd, and then I'd look over an hour later and they're doing it and it's working and they're so happy and they're proud. And, and it like, you know, gave them this extra tool. And I started to really get addicted to that feeling. And so, you know, that realization is basically what pulled me out of my old life, living in Boston, running a studio, dragged my ass to Florida. And now I'm running School of Motion uh, and, and frankly, have never been happier. Man, that's interesting you say yeah. that because I have a five-year-old and uh, usually like as soon as I try to learn something, I have this thing because like if you look, you know, information without application is just entertainment, right? As soon as I learn something, I tr- if I can't explain it to my five-year-old, then that means that I don't know it well enough. And that's kind of like my test. So I try with my wife first and a five-year-old. Like if I can explain it to the five-year-old, that means like that's it. I got it. I can move on. And then like the next step I usually try to do is actually like apply it. Now, what are some challenges have you faced while uh, teaching others? Well, it's funny because you just reminded me of something that happened over the weekend where, uh, so we homeschool our kids and my oldest is seven and she, she's like, I think if she was in school, she'd probably be diagnosed with dyslexia or ADHD or something like that. Like learning doesn't 
it, it, like reading and math and things like that don't come super easy to her. But she wanted to learn to add two numbers together that have two digits in them, right? And it's funny because to me, you know, adding like 22 and 42 or something like that, you just do it in your head and you don't even really know how you do it. It's just like you've done it so many times that it just happens automatically. And I sat down with her and I'm like, ah, this is going to be easy. And I realized how I don't actually know how I add two numbers in my head. And I had to really reverse engineer the whole process. And then I had to dig and dig and dig. And, and, you know, and you realize when you start teaching all of the concepts that, you know, either you've just, you've been using for so long, you have an unconscious awareness of them and, and, or an unconscious competence of them. And then there's principles that you never even learned that are just intuitive to you, right? The difference between the tens column and the ones column in a two digit number I don't remember ever learning that. It just made sense to me. Math always came naturally to me. Well, it does not to my seven-year-old. And I had to like reverse engineer that and figure out how to explain that to her. And we ended up using cute, these little foam cubes and drawing stuff on paper. And by the end of that, I understood addition, something I've been using my entire life at a deeper level. Um, so I'd say the challenge with teaching often is forgetting what you know so that you can put your brain backwards in time and in, in the shoes of the student who may not have the same, you know, like I've always had a gift for math. Like it just always came naturally to me, but to a lot of people it doesn't. And so it, that makes it harder for me to teach math. Whereas luckily for me, animation never came naturally to me. After Effects never came naturally to me. So it's actually a lot easier for me to teach that than, than other things. How do you structure your courses? Because right now we're going, we're putting a course together on the expressions. And man, that's like the most challenging thing we've ever done in our life. Do you have like a system that you subscribe to? Yeah. So at this point, we've done this enough times where we actually have a pretty robust kind of process that we go through. I'd say like the core tenets of it are you have to have really good content. So if you're teaching expressions, for example, you need to really understand, you know, not just like, expressions, but, um, you know, like best coding practices. And there's like all these little pieces when you really dissect the, uh, you know, the topic and you can sort of like figure out like, you know, okay, I can place these into buckets. Like, so for expressions, and if anyone listening doesn't know what they are, cause I know you're, you, you cover a broad variety of topics. Uh, it's basically the coding language inside of Adobe after effects. You know, you have to understand how after effects works. You have to understand how it uses expressions. Then you have to understand that expressions are based on action script, which is a sub or not action script, but, um, is it action script? It's, it's like a form of JavaScript. And then, and so now you have to get into like coding practices and what's a loop and what's an iterator and what's an array. And then you have this giant list of things that like someone needs to know if they are going to quote, no expressions, then you have to put them in the right order. Cause like, where do you start? Right. And I find that a lot of people, they kind of teach backwards. I think like if you watch I'm not going to name any names, but like there's a very well-known online website that has lots and lots and lots and lots of After Effects tutorials. And if you watch their beginner After Effects series, the first thing it shows you is like, here's the After Effects interface. Here's the project window. Here's your timeline. Here's the effects browser. Here's this, here's this, here's this, here's this. And it's trying to give you this comprehensive view of what you're looking at and then start teaching you things. And that's backwards. Because the way I think most people learn is by learning something and then using it right away. And I think that that's really key. So we actually try to teach things just in time instead of just in case. So like when we teach After Effects, in the very first class, you're actually creating an animation and rendering it out. Even if you don't actually know what it is you're doing, you're just copying steps. 
it's because it's developing muscle memory. You're sort of like creating this mental model in your head as you're doing it. And then in the next lesson, we zoom in on one of those steps. Now, why did we do it that way? Well, I don't know. I just know that that's how you do it. All right. Well, now let's explore it. And so by, by, making sure you have the right order, making sure you have all the topics covered, making sure you really think through um, homework assignments and exercises. If you're going to teach someone how to use the wiggle expression or how to use if then in expressions, what's the right thing to then ask them to do to ensure that they actually know it and aren't just copying and pasting what you taught in the lesson, you know? So when we sit down and we outline classes, I mean, we end up with these giant 40 page documents with like tons and tons of detail and we go through it and it takes literally months for us to outline classes. And we always work with, uh, you know, the best instructor we can get. Uh, and then we focus on production value, um, and a support system and interactivity and all these things. So there's actually a lot, a lot that goes into, uh, into making an online class that works really well. I think it's a little bit different when you talk about an in-person class, because it can be a little more fluid because you can respond and react to things. But if you're doing it online, I think you have to pre-visualize the entire thing and almost rehearse it, answer all the questions, be the student, and then create the best version of that you can. Man, that, we're doing it for just, it's going to be online and man, it's the hardest thing we've done. My brother, like yeah. almost in tears every day. He's like, oh my gosh, this is the hardest thing. We learned that it's best, everything starts with writing. So it's best to go back to just write it out first and then take as much, you know, stuff out as you can and simplify it even more. It, literally, I think it's been four months and we're still not done with it. We're still working on it. Like it's the hardest thing we've ever done. Now, you you haven't always been a teacher. How did you get into motion graphics to begin with? Uh, well, I mean, when I was a little kid, I was always into like movies and visual effects. You know, I would, me and my brother and sister would make like little videos using my dad's like old, you know, VHS video camera, you know, like you, like you're standing there and then you pause the camera and then you walk <laughs> out and you hit you hit record again. It's like, whoa, it disappeared. Look at that. Um, so I was always into that and I thought I wanted to do visual effects and I, you know, was probably like in eighth grade or something and download a cracked version of 3d <laughs> studio or something. I'm trying to figure it out. And I ended up like getting really into video editing in college. I went to Boston university and did their film and television program and got into production and, and editing. I ended up getting hired as an assistant editor right after that. And then, like, just because of a fluke, the head editor at my company got laid off or fired, I guess would be the right word. Uh, and they didn't have a head editor. So I just sort of inherited that. And all of a sudden, I was sitting with clients. I was editing. I was, like, doing national TV commercials at, like, age, you know, 22 or 23. And then clients started asking for titles and for transitions and for effects and things like that. And I got really fascinated by it. And I, I knew After Effects a little bit from my experimenting like as a kid and in college with effects. I knew nothing about design. I knew nothing about animation. But I was just in love with the idea that you didn't have to wait for someone to go shoot footage and give it to you. You just could open After Effects and make whatever you want. Open Photoshop and use every single effect and every color and every font, right? And make the worst looking thing ever. But it was really fun. So that's how I got sucked into it. And then from there, I ended up just doing more and more while I was still on staff. And then I eventually realized if I want to get good at this, I need to do it full time. So I had to quit and go freelance. I freelanced for years in Boston. And that's really when I got like, quote, good. I don't think I was actually that good, but I got better. I got good enough. And then after years of doing that, that's when I got an opportunity to start a studio. So I did that. That lasted for four years. And honestly, when I had the studio... And all of a sudden I had people underneath me that I had to teach and train. 
that's actually when I got pretty good and I and I started to feel more confident and comfortable because all of a sudden I had people looking at me like, oh, I guess that's how you do it. And I'm like, oh, shit, I better do it right <laughs> then, you know, I, be- I better do a good job. So, yeah, I mean, that whole process from assistant editor to running the studio to the end of that was probably like 10 years, 12 years. Did you go through a traditional school like a college or are you self-taught? Well, I, I did go to college. I went to Boston University, but my, the program there was called Film and Television. And it was really what I focused on was production. So I learned to use lights and microphones and cameras and then, you know, a little bit of editing. I think I had one class that mentioned After Effects briefly. So nothing that I ended up doing day to day was taught in college. Now, I, I don't know where I heard that. Maybe I even heard this on Chris Stowe podcast, which, by the way, great interview. I really enjoyed it. So you've done some voiceover too, right? Yes. How much did that yeah, help Yeah, I've done you? a lot. Well, it's funny. So the way that happened was when I was freelancing, like this was before the studio, there was this this really cool studio in Boston. They're called Viewpoint Creative. They do amazing work. So they were one of my best clients and I loved working with them. And they were cool because they knew I was an editor like in my previous life, but that I was really an animator. And but but like they needed both. Right. And so because I could do both, it was very easy to book me and they would give me projects where I would just edit the whole thing and do all the graphics. And it was really great. And so as an editor, a lot of times, especially for that studio, because we were doing promos, things like that, there was always a script. And so, uh, you know, usually the editor or the producer, someone at the studio would do a scratch record and then it would get replaced later on by a pro. Well, I always liked you know i've i've been a drummer for 25 years i've been in bands i've never been shy in front of a microphone so i um i would always like do my best and try and do a good voiceover and you know it's funny like when you put a script in front of people in a microphone they tend to just read it like this and read the words and just say the words correctly but to really do it right you have to be animated and emote and you're acting basically and so because i was willing to try and at least put some effort into it sometimes Clients would hear my scratch track and say, huh, I actually like that voice. Let's just use that guy. So that happened a couple times. And then finally, one time they sent a commercial off to an actual talent agency in New York and said, hey, here's a commercial. The editor's voice is on it, but we want you to recommend some of your like professional voiceover people to us. And the agent called them back and said, OK, well, here's four people we think would be good. But actually, the guy that, you know, is the voice is on there. We kind of want to talk to that guy because we're <laughs> looking for someone with his voice. It, voiceover is a weird industry and there's different sort of types. And so my voice is sort of the young, hip sounding voice. I don't know if it actually sounds that way, but when I do my voiceover voice, like, hey, what's up, everybody? Like that kind of thing. Right. It sounds young and cool. So um, so I ended up talking to this agent and they signed me. And all of a sudden wow. I had an agent and I was doing auditions and I was the voice of this MTV show. No way. I got a bunch of commercials. Yeah, it was a short-lived uh, – do you remember – I don't know how old you are, Vladimir, but there was Pretty a show old. called uh, TRL on MTV. Yeah. It was the, yeah, the biggest show ever. So when that show went off the air, the replacement for that show was called It's On with Alexa Chung. They brought this uh, British model over and they gave her her own show and it was there was – the replacement to TRL. So it was in the prime spot and I was the voiceover guy. Wow. Um, and I have a lot of funny stories from that time. But anyway, so I ended up doing tons of voiceover and I still do every once in a while. If you hear a Vista print commercial, there's a good chance that's me on there. Uh-oh. Um, but I, I don't do it as much anymore because it actually takes a lot of time and my time's like pretty limited these days with school motion. But what I will say 
is that that was a, an opportunity that just kind of like happened to me because I gave it my all. I was like, okay, it's voiceover. I'm just going to try. And that led to an opportunity. I said yes to that. I got zero auditions for about, I, I got zero gigs for about nine months. I sucked at voiceover. It, the, I was awful at it. I went to voiceover coaches, which is another funny story. And, but I eventually got good enough where I started getting booked, getting booked again. And then all of a sudden I was winning every audition I did. And I got really busy with it. It was great money. And then in my next life, when I started doing video tutorials and being on camera teaching After Effects, well, shoot, it turns out it's really useful if you're used to talking in front of a microphone and animating your voice up and down and trying to make yourself sound interesting. So I never knew going in that that's what voiceover would turn into. But it turns out it's actually pretty handy. Yeah, you clearly sound really good. Now, on stage, do you do you ever get nervous? Uh, yeah, of course. I mean... I, I will say that like, I don't know. So when I, when I, I play, like I mentioned, I played drums and I remember like in college, my first like real band that I was in that like played out and did clubs and bars and festivals and stuff like that. I remember my first gig ever I'd played in high school. I played like parties and stuff like that, but never like a real like club. And our first club gig, I was probably like 21 or something. And I remember I couldn't sleep the night before and then we get there and I set my drums up and I'm like shaking and I'm nervous and I like had to drink a beer to like calm down. And I felt that way every show for like the first six months. And then finally that went away. And after, you know, eight or 10 years of playing shows, being in front of crowds, I actually ended up singing back up in one of the bands I was in. That kind of just goes away. And and so like for me now, that's what getting on stage and, you know, I got, I got to host this awesome festival in Vancouver called Blend. I've gone to NAB a couple times in Adobe Video World and spoken and presented there. And to me, it feels like performing. So I get a little bit of nervous, you know, beforehand. But once I'm up there, I'm so used to it because I've done it so much. So again, it's just one of those things where I never thought, oh, being a drummer in a band is going to help me get up and present at NAB. It turns out like that that actually kind of helped me get over stage fright. So I get a little nervous, but I'm sure a lot less than people who haven't consistently like been in front of crowds. Have you ever like blanked out on stage? Like it recently happened to me. I got up and my mm -hmm. presentation set right down. Dude, I almost didn't recover. But have you did this ever happen to you? Luckily, no. <laughs> um, but I think the, the reason for that is just because I... I over prepare for stuff like that. So um, I'm trying to think of an example like, OK, so this actually just happened. So I was at NAB this, uh, you know, a month ago and I did a presentation and this was really stupid of me to do it this way. But I like in hindsight, like 2020, I did a presentation on an After Effects tool called Templater. What I wanted to show, I wanted to demonstrate to this room. And I want to say there's probably 200 people at this session. It was like a really packed room. It was called Mogra. It was called MoGraph Automation in After Effects or something like that. And the idea was I was going to build this crazy automation rig in After Effects and then let the audience use it in real time. And what I built was this system where you log into this website, you type in your name and your birth date, and then like two minutes later, you go to this Twitter feed and there's an animation with your name and your birth date rendered out in this animation on Twitter. And I did it using Templater and all built-in stuff in After Effects, no fancy tricks or anything. Now, the problem was that this only works if you have a good internet connection because, you know, lots of apps have to talk to each other. Templater has to look at a Google sheet and then it has to upload the render to Twitter and all these things. 
And at NAB, you have like 150,000 geeks all using the internet at the same time. So I got into the room and I started doing the presentation. And when I got to the part where I needed the internet to work, it did not work. And the whole thing was like predicated on this thing working. Now, I thought I was, this was like my worst nightmare. And literally like, I luckily had a plan B. Uh, And I thought about it ahead of time. I sort of pre-visualized what happens if the internet doesn't work. Well, I tested out beforehand, will it work if I tether to my phone? And it did. It's a little slower, but it worked. So I literally in front of everyone been like, had to like kind of vamp and be like, all right, so here we are at NAB and I'm giving a presentation that requires the internet and the internet's not working. So give me a second. I'm actually going to tether to my phone, which makes this even more impressive. And I had like practiced saying that. So I said that I tethered to my phone. It worked fine. If I hadn't, if I had just hoped everything was going to work and crossed my fingers, I would have been really screwed (laughs) in that situation. So I think the key to not blinking is to have a a fallback plan. What if I forget what I'm supposed to say? What if I'm supposed to present four people and I forget one of their names or I forget how to pronounce their name or something like that? Have a couple of lines in the back of your head, like just ready to pull out, you know, and that comes with experience. And, you know, I can say like as a drummer, I've had plenty of shows where like I completely blow it and screw up and (laughs) stop in them. I mean, that's happened to me. But luckily, never with a microphone in my hand. But it's interesting you say that because it's true. Like, I do a little bit of speaking for an organization. And, uh, like, I have, like, plan B. Like, if I drop my nose, I kind of know what to default to. Like, if I drop my phone, it's like, oh, gravity check, gravity works, something. But for that one time where I blanked out, like, I didn't prepare. And I remember I was even telling somebody afterwards, like, man, I, I just never thought of that happening. It was like a scripted seven-minute speech without a teleprompter. And yeah. I mentioned something that wasn't part of the script, and it threw me off completely, and I forgot where it was. And it was just like a disaster for like five seconds, but it felt like eternity. But I just remember thinking, man, if I had that plan B to fall back on, I would have been – like if I just said like, hey, I just, just made him, make him do something to distract him for a second and then just do it. Yeah. But I, I just paused for a second. I said, hey, I'm, I'm a little nervous, which I wasn't. And then I kind of found my spot and recovered. Yeah. Well, actually, you just reminded me of something else, too. And, and it's funny because, you know, b- before we started recording, you were talking about when you had Chris on. Yeah. And, and he was like, let me challenge you. Throw your questions away. Don't use your questions, right? Yeah. Um, and there's actually, like, some wisdom to that because what can happen, I think, is if, you, if you're giving a presentation or you're giving a class or something like that and it's totally scripted, and you practice, practice, practice the script. It's like you're on a train track. And all that has to happen is you get a little bit derailed and it's impossible to get back on. When I speak publicly, when I do tutorials, anytime I'm talking, I it's very rare that I have a script in front of me. The only time I would do it is like when we do our podcast, uh, my intros and the outros, I write those out, I record those. But I'm reading words in front of me. There's no chance that I will forget them. But if I'm giving a speech or a, a you know a class or something like that, I never use a script because it's to me it's better to to practice being in that flow state. You know, like like right now, I kind of feel like I feel like I'm not really having to think very hard about what I'm saying. It just sort of falls out. But if I had this whole prepared answer and I like then kind of went off this way and I couldn't find my way back, you'd get stuck. So I think just practicing being off the cuff. 
that's another skill that that comes in handy when you get into public speaking because then you don't need to be so precise you know well is it true like when every time i have to get up and speak and share like my story stuff like i don't have a problem with that at all but when it's scripted and you like it's sequential like after you there's a certain part that has to happen like if you mess up the whole thing goes down that's where i, I get nervous the most and especially during that time there was like no teleprompter it yeah. was intense you know but yeah as far as like bullet points it's definitely my default you know, yeah. Every time. Now, you mentioned something earlier. You said you hired a, a coach for voiceovers. And I'm curious because you you mentioned that you also, in the podcast that I was listening with Christo, you mentioned that you also have a business coach. Yeah. How much do you value that? Like, that's something that I'm just recently starting to hear more and more. A lot of, like, Christo has a business coach. Everyone that I admire has a business coach. Now, how important is it? So having a business coach, like the decision that I made three years ago or a little over three years ago now to pay money that at the time seemed like a lot to have a business coach. That is probably one of the most important decisions I've ever made in my entire life. So there's different kinds of coaching, right? When I was, when I got voiceover coaching, it was coaching, but it was also, it was mostly teaching. I did not know how to do voiceovers. You know, it was one of those things where I thought I did, like I, you know, I know how to turn on a microphone and talk into it, but to read a script and make your voice do the right things and to put the right emphasis in the right words, I didn't, had no clue. For a business coach, it's very different, right? And maybe like something that, so I wanna, I'll talk about the business coach, but I think it'll be easier for people to relate to this. I also have a running coach. Oh, okay. Wow. So I'm, I'm, I love running. I run uh, lately less. I used to do two marathons a year. Now it's been like Damn. one a year, but I run all the time. I'm running like 40 miles a week right now. So I know how to run. My running form is good. I've run, I think like 12 marathons. Like I know how to train. I know how to get training programs together, stuff like that. So why the heck do I pay someone to be my running coach, right? It's not because I don't know how to run. It's not because I don't know how to set up a training program. It's because human nature is if you have a piano hanging over your head that can kill you if it falls, you'll move out of the way. If that piano isn't there, eh, you'll just stay put. And so I have the coach literally because now I have skin in the game. And there is someone that if I don't wake up early and I don't do my run, I have to report back to them. Yeah, I was lazy this morning. I didn't run. And just that little thing makes me do stuff that's difficult. So it's the exact same with a business coach. So my business coach did not teach me anything I didn't know. By the time I hired the business coach, I had read The 4-Hour Workweek. I had read every Seth Godin book. I had listened to hundreds of hours of Pat Flynn and, you know, uh, Mixer G and every business podcast there was. I had an email list. I, you know, I was doing all of the things. The hard thing was to create a product and ask people to pay me for it. It's scary. And I had all these reasons in my head why it wasn't going to work and you know how like my entire like at the time very tiny little website would crumble and so what my business coach did that was super valuable was like told me to launch a product made me put a date on the calendar and held me accountable to it and that's it frankly she didn't even need to know anything about business to do that she just needed to be a human that can be a little bit of a hard ass when she needed to and so that's the true value to me of having a coach for anything is just being accountable. Now, if you also don't know the topic, well, that's also valuable. If you have a, you know, if you're taking drum lessons or something and you don't know how to play drums, you need someone to teach you. But you also need someone to make you practice because otherwise you might just decide to watch Netflix instead. But if you're 
drum teacher makes you keep a practice journal and turn it in every week, well, heck, it turns out you're more likely to practice, which means you're more likely to, to get good. So that to me is the value of coaching. I'm a twin, you know, Sergey's my uh, identical twin brother. And that's pretty much, uh, we both keep each other accountable. Like I make sure I'm on top of him. It's awesome. It's interesting. Now you mentioned pricing courses and that's something that's so, uh, on, I mean, we're coming out with the course on the 15th, I believe. And it's, yep. it's so relevant right now. What are some, and we're having a hard time pricing it because you know, Oh, we don't want to make it too expensive, but we don't want to make it too cheap. And everybody, we don't turn off everybody, but at the same time, you know, four plus months of work, like how do you price that? Do you have any tips, advice for someone who's working on the course and they're trying to price it accordingly? I have a lot to say about that. Okay. So pricing is like a very deep, deep, long rabbit hole, right? So there, there's, so I would start with this, right? The, if you, if you're going to sell this product, right? And you're building a business around selling courses. Um, now, I don't know what other avenues of business you have. If this is just a little piece, you know, is this just beer money, like some passive income, <laughs> or are you trying to turn this into a thing, right? So I can, I can speak about School of Motion. For me, when we launched our first course, this was my monetization strategy. This was how I was going to turn School of Motion into my full-time job, into a sustainable business that can teach people and, and help people learn motion design in theory forever, right? And the only way that works is if it makes enough money to pay me enough money that I can pay my bills without doing other stuff like freelancing or taking a full-time job or something like that. So if you just do some math, you can figure out that selling a course for 79 bucks is not going to cut it, okay? So part of it's just necessity. If, let's say, you know, you need to make $75,000 a year, you know, in order to like pay all of your bills and your course costs $75, can you sell, I mean, a thousand of them isn't even enough with like credit card processing and all the other fees and your other expenses. Let's say you have to sell 2000 of them per year forever for that to business model to work. Is that likely? It's hard, right? What if that course was 500 bucks? Now you don't have to sell as many, right? Now you can sell a lot less. What is it? 150? So uh, pricing our courses initially was about just making the business sustainable, giving it a chance in hell of actually working. On top of that, and I know Chris talks about this a lot, you don't, a bad way to price your course would be, all right, well, I think my time is worth, I don't know, $60, $70 an hour, and it took four months to make this class, right? So about 500 hours um, so I can sort of price it around that. You don't want to do it that way. You want to price it based on the value that it provides. So our classes, you know, you're getting like the best content that we possibly could have put together. You're getting a teaching assistant that literally like answers any question you have, critiques your homework, the entire length of the class. You're getting access to hundreds of other students, hundreds of other. I mean, the, the value is insane. So we charge for that. We don't just charge for like the amount of work that it took us to make the course. Because frankly, the course that I made, I made it three years ago. It requires almost no effort to keep it up. We, you know, the teaching assistants continue to critique work and do all of that. But for me, I barely touch it. But we don't lower the price because of that, right? So you charge based on the value of it. And then here's another thing that's interesting too. And this is, again, goes back to the business coach. Uh, Initially, our course, Animation Bootcamp, the course that, you know, it's one of our best selling ones still. That's the course that I teach. That course, I think we initially sold it 
for 250 bucks. It's now a $900 course, right? And the price will likely go up. And so what you'll realize is that the customers that you're looking for, ones that are so serious about After Effects in their profession, that they are willing to dive into an expressions course, it's worth hundreds of dollars to them. It's worth, you know, I, I don't know how your course is structured. I don't know how long it is. But I can tell you, I wouldn't charge less than probably three, four hundred bucks for it. Um, Man, I don't know what, well, I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't know what number you guys were thinking, but you can also look around. I mean, like you can, you can look at our courses, right? Our courses range depending on the length of the course from 600 to 900 currently. And those prices will, will change, I'm sure. But you've got, you know, um, Grayscale Gorilla, Hello Lux, companies like that. They sell courses that are totally passive anywhere from a hundred to $300, we have a course that's totally passive, $300. You've got MoGraph Mentor, right? Which is fully interactive, which is $2,000 per session. So as long as you're in that range somewhere, you know, no one's going to blink. And generally what I find too, so it was interesting what you just said. You said you have faith. <laughs> um, you also have to realize that if you price something at $10, someone's going to tell you it's too much money, right? Someone's going to tell you you're asking for too much. If you price it at $100, Maybe a few more people will tell you it's too expensive. If you price it at $1,000, even more people will tell you it's expensive. People will still buy it. And those are the people that are actually going to get the value from your course. All the customers out there, I shouldn't even call them customers, but all the people out there that, you know, they'd be willing to pay you 10 bucks, but not 100. Well, that's not your niche. That's not your audience. And there's other resources that can serve them uh, if that's really what they're willing to spend. But there are plenty of very serious motion designers out there and After Effects artists that for a good expressions course, I have no doubt would pay $1,000. Wow. And, you know, and yeah. it's not, the fear, I guess, that drives us to lower our costs because the fear of criticism and you know, that's, that's something we've been battling back and forth. And Sergey, he's been giving away content for the last three years, you know, everything he yep. ever know. And so now he's transitioning from giving away to finally like, hey, I quit my job. Both of us did, so now we need to charge for this, our work, and so it's just kind of this battle. Like, you know, we don't want to turn our audience off, but at the same time, like, we gotta pay the bills. You know, it's you, we'd love to just give it away, but at some point, you gotta put on the entrepreneurial hat on and just say, "Hey, this is a business. This is our stream of income." You know, and but that's been that's been the struggle for the last four months. We we still haven't set the price because we just I don't know. It's a topic that we just can't figure out right now. Yeah, I, I mean, it sounds like what you're dealing with is that uh, that voice in your head, you know, that you'd like you're probably playing out worst case scenarios like you have, you know, you guys have a, a pretty big audience uh, because you've been putting out like really good free content, which like that's exactly what, you know, you're supposed to do. But at some point, if you want that to be sustainable, see, here's it's interesting when we uh, started selling these courses and then we raised the price and then we raised the price and we raised the price again. I kept preparing myself to have conversations with people. Hey, why'd you raise your price? Why is it so much money? And I like I would kind of defend it in my head, like talking to myself. And it's never happened, man. Like we have people that tell us they wish our courses were less expensive. But our courses are the price they are because our business is not sustainable otherwise. You know, and, and that's one of the things you got to realize too is that nobody who's not running a business understands the costs involved, right? If you start running classes and now you have customer support, right? You have to deal with refunds. You have to deal with, you know, if, if you uh, 
picked the wrong credit card processor, which we did twice. You have to deal with switching to a new credit card processor. You have to deal with, you know, your email provider goes down. I mean, all of the things that you have to deal with as a business now just get harder and harder and harder. If you guys sell enough courses, you'll have enough customer support where you probably need someone full-time to help you. Or if you want to scale up your marketing like we did last year, you need to hire someone to do that. Well, to do that, you need to be making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year to be able to pay you, pay your brother, pay this other employee, pay for any marketing expenses you have, hosting. I, I don't know what you're hosting the video for your course on, but if it's not YouTube, you are paying a cost for that. If it's Wist, if it's Wistia, it will be a very high cost. Our Wistia bill last year, and we had to switch off of Wistia, was $1,200 a month. Um, just Wistia. So, wow. and, and so like, you know, like you have to charge enough to make a profit or otherwise in a year or two, you're going to say this isn't worth it and shut it down. And that has happened a lot. There is a website that, and I don't know the backstory really other than what he posted on his website. But so I, I can't speak too like detailed about it, but there is, in my opinion, one of the best after effects tutorials website in the history of the internet. It's called Matt trunks. You familiar with it, with that? I'm not actually. But then Matt again, Trunks. my brother Sergey is more of a After Effects okay. than I am. Maybe Sergey served it, but Matt Trunks, okay? Um, and I believe his name is, you know, Matho or something like that. He's French. He's a French guy. And his After Effects tutorials were amazing, unbelievable. And he had this model uh, years ago, before this was even cool to do, where he had a lot of free stuff, and then he had really premium stuff that you pay a subscription for. And I want to say the subscription was something comical. It was like six bucks a month or something. And it and people pirated it and stole it and stuff like that. And it turns out that that's not enough money to make it worth his time to keep doing this. So he stopped and he wrote this blog post that may still be up there where it basically explained like I have to stop doing this because people are stealing it and I'm not making enough money and I have to find another source of income. And when I read it, I'm like, that's such a shame because I would have paid a hundred bucks a month and, I, and, and if I would have paid that, other people would have. And it, rather than have to shut it down, he could have been making enough money to keep doing it. So you have to charge enough to make it sustainable. Otherwise, you're doing your customers a disservice because it's not going to last very long. I mean, there's a lot of decisions like that. Like you said, you quit your jobs and I'm assuming now you're focusing way more time on this endeavor. That's a good move. Because if you didn't do that, then all the Euchre Media fans out there Eventually, maybe in, in a year or two when it's not bringing in money and you're sick of staying up super late to do this stuff because right. you have a day job and the whole thing goes away, they're bummed, right? So you have to charge enough so that it's actually profitable and worth your time and worth Sergey's time. No, this was definitely timely yeah. and we need to hear this, especially Sergey. You know, as artists, you, you want to please your audience. You want to make sure that everybody gets it and stuff. But at the same time, you know, we have kids, families, and we <laughs> walked away from our jobs to do this full time. So this is definitely helpful and think of the think about this too i think there, there's a lot of um there's a lot of i don't, I don't know if ho hypocrisy is the right word but there's this weird cognitive dissonance i think sometimes with money and, and creative people because you know to to be a freelance designer right and you go on twitter and like if a client asks you to do like you know a logo design for a hundred bucks you can go on Twitter and blast them and make fun of them and everyone piles on, oh, what a cheapskate. Oh, don't they know the value of what you're doing, right? How can you pay your bills on a $100 logo? But then you ask that same designer to pay $1,000 for a logo design course that's going to make them a better designer 
um, you know, and, and and end up like being an investment that pays off times a hundred over the course of their career. It you know there there's sometimes this idea of like oh well now that person's greedy like why should knowledge should be free you know and that kind of stuff. And so I just look at everything very practically, and I know that that's not how everybody works, and especially creatives typically don't work this way. But like I just look at it practically, like. If I want that logo designer who I love and I love his work or her work, if I want her to be able to make another logo for me in a year, they need to charge enough where they can pay all of their bills by making logos. So I'm happy to pay $500, $1,000, whatever it is, knowing that in the long term, it benefits me to pay that money, right? Like selfishly, I'm helping to sustain them. And when I see people creating amazing stuff and not charging enough for it, it kind of frustrates me because I know that that service is not going to stick around. And to me, that's a that's a bigger crime than maybe asking for too much money. And even if it is a little bit driven by greed, which I mean, maybe sometimes it is. You just want to make more money. But I, I still think that it's worth it in the long run if then that amazing resource can stick around and not go away. But then again, like, you know, by price have premium prices you attract premium people people that can afford it they're serious about their learning they'll take on because a lot of times you give away free stuff people just kind of like eh. you know it's kind of like when the, the car you get from your parents you don't take care of it as much as the car that you bought with your own money you know what i mean yeah it has the same kind of that concept actually somebody just emailed us uh not too long ago last week this girl she's like i'm struggling with pricing my work i just give up and it's just this whole money thing it's, it's a struggle for most artists most artists don't know how to price their work not even courses and stuff like that but it's something as simple as pricing your time with projects that they struggle so much yeah you, you you just made an awesome point which is like this whole other side of the pricing discussion we, we didn't touch on which is that there's this thing called price psychology and i know christo talks about this a lot like if you get, check out his youtube channel he's got a ton of great stuff on this and it's true like you know the $500, that would mean probably $50,000 Rolex, right? Versus like a $5,000 still really nice knockoff. It's probably basically identical, but which one do you feel has more value, right? And and it's the same thing with designers. I mean, you could be, you know, Stefan Sagmeister, but if you put um, an ad up on Fiverr advertising logo design, people are going to assume you're not as good as someone who charges more. And it's actually very counterintuitive. So I understand why people are hesitant to do it. But like a lot of times, one way to get more sales is by raising your prices, right? Um, I can tell you when we, so going back to like our courses, our course animation bootcamp, I want to say was originally 250. I raised it to 500 when we launched it for real. And then I very quickly raised it to 600 and I was like, cowering. I was like, Oh my gosh, like here it comes. And the reason I raised it to 600 was because I did the math and I'm like at 500, it like basically is going to break even if I have to hire another employee. And so, you know, we raised the price and we had like almost double the number of sales. Okay. So now not all of that can be attributed to raising the price. We also were growing our reputation, but my point is that raising the price, you know, unless you like quadruple it typically doesn't hurt sales. And I know Christo says this all the time. It's counterintuitive, but it's true, frankly. Now, I'm curious with this one. How do you encourage people to sign up like during the launch period? Do you give any? I know some people just don't believe in giving discounts. Like that's something we subscribe to. I don't believe in, you know, you'll never see Apple products go on sale, you know. But sure. how do you encourage people to buy in early? I'm curious to, to hear your take on this. Sure. So um, so the discounts thing is, in, is interesting. So we, 
I don't think have ever given discounts, just like general discounts. Um, and the reason for that is because you can, you know, th- there are other businesses in our field that do steep discounts a few times a year. Okay. And what tends to happen is people don't buy the rest of the year and you get like most of your revenue on Black Friday or something like that. Right. So that becomes a cash flow issue if you do things that way. Also, one thing that's very important to me is that people take our classes and get a ton out of them and that they're very useful. And the only way that happens is if they do the class and our classes are hard and they're long and 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 you're doing difficult things. And so I want that person to have as much skin in the game as possible. And frankly, the more we charge them, the better value they're going to get out of the class because they're going to have more incentive to actually do the homework and all that kind of stuff. So like, so the, those are some of the things that go through my mind when I talk about coupons. Now, in the past, what we have done is given coupon codes to alumni to help them get their next course. And we started doing it like really early and we never rethought it. And we actually just recently stopped that program as well. So now, unless we're talking to a company that's going to put like, you know, five or 10 of their artists through one of our classes, then we'll give them like a bulk discount, but we don't do discounts. And I think someone to kind of, you know, if anyone's curious about the psychology behind it, like read up on Ramit Sethi, R-A-M-I-T-S-E-T-H-I. He doesn't like the idea of discounts because A, it cheapens your brand. You know, it's like, you know, if you could get a coupon for a School of Motion course, well, then School of Motion is no longer this like premium thing, right? Like if you could get a 50% off code for an iPod or, you know, or like an iPad or something like that, it does. It cheapens Apple's brand, which is premium. And we want to be, you know, I have nothing against lynda.com, but we don't want to be lynda.com. We want to be pr- the premium motion design training source. So that's one thing. Uh, it creates, you know, like I mentioned, these structural issues like with cash flow and things like that. And you get, you just get people like just waiting around for a coupon before they buy anything. So we don't do coupons. Now, in, in order to get people to buy, I mean, we do, there's not like any tricks to it. Like we make our products really, 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 really good. We put these really elaborate sales pages together that have a ton of information in them about what's in the class. We have a full-time customer support community ambassador person who is literally every day answering like dozens of questions about the classes. We just put live chat on our site. So during business hours, you can actually like chat with someone and get answers about classes. And then when it's time to to open the cart and actually get people to buy, we do email marketing, we do content marketing, we're starting uh, to have affiliates promote promote our classes with us, you know, and our classes do sell out. We do have like a limited number of seats. So that helps because there's scarcity. But I mean, really, I think the best strategy is is to just have a good product and just like ask people to buy it. I mean, that's one thing that, you have to do. You actually have to say, buy it. <laughs> you know, you have to like instruct people. If you have this problem, here's the solution. Click this button and buy it. And that's also like another psychologically scary thing for a lot of creative people to do. But that's basically all we do. We don't we do not do 30% off 24 hours only. We don't do that kind of stuff. Well, hey, man, thank you. So I just looked at the time like, oh my gosh, I'm holding you over. Hey, one last question. What are you the most excited about today? Man, that's a that's a tough one. Uh, what am I most excited about today? I mean, I could say like at School of Motion, there's a lot of exciting things going on. Um, you know, I, I actually I'll, I'll say this, and this is something that I really hope you and Sergey get to experience at some point, which is that in the last few months, there's been a big shift at School of Motion that you, probably no one on the outside can can sense. But internally, what's happened is 
we really are a team now. There's actually there's five of us full time at School of Motion now, including myself. And slowly but surely, like this thing that used to be the Joey show and, and was just this thing I had like my arms and legs around and was holding on to, I've slowly let go of. And I'm still like involved day to day and now primarily in the making of classes and recruiting and stuff like that. But marketing, I'm barely involved with at all. Customer support, I'm barely involved with at all. Our website, I'm not involved with at all. A lot of the actual day-to-day production of our classes, I'm not involved with. And, you know, getting to the point where it's actually a company, it's not the Joey show. I can imagine a day where School of Motion exists, but I'm not part of it at all. I don't want that day to happen, like just so everyone knows. But I can envision it. And to me, that means School of Motion is going to be around for a long time. Because it doesn't rely on me. It, it can live on its own. It's become its own thing. So I'm very, very excited about that. And I hope that one day Euchre Media uh, is in the same situation. Oh, man, I hope so, too. And I like the fact, you know, a lot of times people, you know, start a YouTube channel and then name it, name it after their name. And I think that's a huge mistake. Because then you're so tied into it and you can't withdraw yourself from it. And that's from the day one. We're trying to do the whole Euchremedia.com. And, but it's still hard. You know, people get attached to a teacher. So it's, it's really hard to pull yourself from a business. Do you have any advice for that? I've thought a lot about it, actually, because, you know, I, I look at, um, you know, like one of my heroes, uh, Andrew Kramer, right? Can you imagine Video Copilot without Andrew Kramer at this point? It, it's, it's a real danger. Um, and, and so, like, my advice is you have to, it's an active process. You can't just let the business grow and you hang back. You literally have to, like, push the business away from you a little bit. There have been a lot of times where we have a piece of content that we really want to put out there that I'm an expert on. Like if it's about animation or something like that, and I could just make a tutorial right now and put it out there, but I don't. We like go through the hassle and pain and cost and logistics of finding someone else to do it so that it's not me. So that's like a, that's a very active process. And I would say that, you know, for you guys, if your course, your expressions course is successful and you do another one. Have someone else teach it. You know, uh, if you're putting out video tutorials, find other people to contribute, um, you know, and, and try and figure out what makes Euchre Media different than School of Motion, different than Grayscale Gorilla, different than Mount MoGraph, so that the Euchre Media brand becomes the hero and, and not so much, you know, Vladimir and Sergey. Great advice. Hey, thank you so yep. much for your time. I appreciate it. Now, how can people get in touch with you? Uh, so you can go to schoolmotion.com and uh, very easily get, get in touch with us. There's like a little chat bubble down in the corner. You can go to the support page. If you want to get in touch with me specifically, um, probably the easiest way is to actually go through our support and just write a message. Say, hey, this is for Joey. And, and um, they, everything gets, gets sent to me. Um, and I try still to write back. It's getting harder, but I try to write back to everybody that writes to me. We're also on Twitter at School of Motion, uh, Facebook, you know, School of Motion. So basically all the normal channels. That's how you can get hold of us. All right, Joey. Thank you so much, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me, man. All right. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Joey Kornman. You can find more information about Joey at schoolofmotion.com. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this podcast. I hope you enjoy what I've been doing. I don't ask for a lot, but please take a moment to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is you get your podcast. It will only take you a second, but it will help other people discover the podcast. And my goal is to share this great content with as many people as possible. All the links and resources mentioned in this episode are available on our website at ukramedia.com slash 15. Stay tuned for our expressions course. We're almost done. 
done. You can go to ukrainmedia.com slash expressions for more information. Don't forget to join our online mentoring group on Facebook. Simply go to ukrainmedia.com slash community. We have over 2,000 people in this group. It's absolutely free. It's a great resource for those of you who are trying to grow. Thank you so much for joining me on the journey of this podcast. I appreciate you and I look forward to serving you in the next episode of the Ukrainmedia podcast. Bye-bye.